Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Censored, the podcast where I get to trash talk classic literature if the Irish censor was thoughtful enough to ban it. I'm Aoife Vritnach, historian and compulsive reader. This episode features Aldous Huxley's Point Counterpoint, which was published in 1928. Huxley is most famous for his 1932 book, Brave New World, which was, of course, also banned. I have tried to read Brave New World before and failed, so I thought I'd start with this earlier novel, Point Counterpoint was actually one of the first novels banned under the new Censorship Act in 1930. Huxley's book and Claude McKay's Home to Harlem were deemed indecent and obscene, while Radcliffe Hall's The Well of Loneliness was merely indecent. The first three books censored by the Irish state were a pretty diverse group that are now all considered classics. Huxley's book is a well-known modernist text, Hall's book is famous because of its lesbian subject matter, while Claude McKay was an important African-American writer who documented black urban culture. From the very start, the censors were offended by all kinds of books. The banning of these three wildly different books was the start of a long, inglorious blacklist. Huxley's book features a closely knit group of posh people, half of whom are related to each other, while the other half are fucking each other. To give you one example, Walter Bidlake, who appears on page one, is riding Lucy Tantamont, daughter of Lady Tantamont, who had had a long-standing affair with Walter's father, John Bidlake. Honestly, you need a chart to work out how the characters are connected, and it's too serious a book to have one of those helpful list of characters at the beginning. The title of the book refers to a musical effect, and the structure of the book is supposed to mimic this. Therefore, the whole narrative deliberately juxtaposes radically different worldviews. At 569 pages, it's quite long, and I won't even mention lots of the book's characters in this episode, because we'd be here all day. When I went looking for an appropriate beverage to sustain me through this book, I was quite disappointed to find nothing. Oddly, there are lots of parties, but no description of food or drink consumed. There's an extended chapter where a group hangs out in a restaurant and the food doesn't even get a mention. Music rather than food is central to this book. 
Bach features prominently in chapters 2 and 3, where Lord Tantamount is lusting irrepressibly for Bach. And the Beethoven Quartet has a revelatory role at the very end of the book. Perhaps the reason there is so little on the physical appetite and sensuality of food is because the book is all about the interior life. Point-Counterpoint is considered a novel of ideas, where characters and storylines are subordinate to the points being made. The characters are types rather than fully realised people. It isn't important what a stereotype eats, unless that plays some symbolic role, and Huxley has not chosen eating to play this role. In fact, he prefers to use sex to explore ideas and his character types. Obviously, this is a shame if you fancy a cocktail. I think a highball cocktail would go well with this book. It's a drink that would find favour with the older characters, as well as those who came to adulthood after World War I. Basically, it's a whiskey or gin mixed with soda over ice, and the choice of spirit can reflect the tastes of the drinker. Traditionalists might favour scotch, while bright young things could favour gin. It's the perfect drink for the incestuously close, intermarrying upper classes who populate this novel. Although it was not very interested in bodily appetites, this book was branded indecent and obscene by the censor, and it was illegal to sell it in Ireland between 1930 and 1967. That's a long time to be banned. All credit to Huxley, he joins the exclusive club of authors whose books put the bannable content on the very first page. Both high-end literature and popular fiction writers did this. Check out my previous episodes on Catch-22 and Pleasure Ground to see some other examples. Point Counterpoint opens with the domestic scene of a man, Walter, dressing for an evening out, but his partner Marjorie is not accompanying him. The shocking social sin that explains why she's not going to parties is quickly and brutally explained on page one. And I'll just read this part out to you. But, as a matter of fact, she didn't know, for the good reason that, not being his wife, she wasn't invited to them. She had left her husband to live with Walter Bidlake, and Carling, who had Christian scruples, was feebly a sadist and wanted to take his revenge, refused to divorce her. It was two years now since they had begun to live together. Only two years, and now, already, he had ceased to love her. He had begun to love someone else. The sin was losing its own excuse, the social discomfort its sole palliation. And she was with child. So on page one, a man is living with a separated woman who abandoned her husband for him, and she's pregnant. That's three strikes against marital propriety in one paragraph. The romantic entanglements of the characters are not examined to see how they feel, but they're placed before us with a detached surgical precision. This leads to Huxley writing things that were radical and shocking to many contemporaries. I'm sure not only the Irish censor found his description of the cycle of human life a little uncomfortable. And here on page two is his meditation on conception, birth and the human species. Something that had been a single cell, a cluster of cells, a little sack of tissue, a kind of worm, a potential fish with gills, stirred in her womb and would one day become a man, 
a grown man, suffering and enjoying, loving and hating, thinking, remembering, imagining. And what had been a blob of jelly within her body would invent a god and worship. What had been a kind of fish would create, and, having created, would become the battleground of disputing good and evil. It's fair to say that many people today would still find the idea that deities are invented by human beings deeply disturbing. For religious conservatives in 1930, this bald statement that the Christian God was invented rather than manifest truth would have been completely unacceptable. As I already said, this is a book about ideas, not people. So Huxley is most interested in Marjorie's personally tragic pregnancy as a vehicle for philosophy. But he is brave enough to show that Marjorie is miserable and afraid of the pregnancy, and that Walter hated the child for compelling him to be so considerate to its mother. So apart from sins against marriage vows and a wee little bit of blasphemy, what else did Huxley do in point-counterpoint to deserve a ban from censors? If they did read as far as page 150, I hope they would have been absolutely revolted by the seduction techniques of a character called Spandrel. This odious man seduces pathetic and helpless women using a plan of campaign that is truly disturbing. I'll read you a part of it from page 151. It actually goes on for about two and a half pages, so I'll just read you a small excerpt. They feel they could trust one absolutely, and so they can for the first weeks. One has to get them used to the trap, quite tame and trusting, trained not to shy at an occasional brotherly pat on the back or an occasional chaste, uncleish kiss on the forehead. Well then, finally, when the moment seems ripe and they're thoroughly domesticated and no more frightened, one stages the denouement. Tea in one's rooms, one's got them thoroughly used to coming with absolute impunity to one's rooms, and they're going out to dinner with one so that there's no hurry. The twilight deepens, one talks disillusionedly and yet feelingly about the amorous mysteries. One produces cocktails, very strong, and goes on talking so that they ingurgitate them absent-mindedly without reflection. And sitting on the floor at their feet, one begins very gently stroking their ankles in an entirely platonic way, still talking about amorous philosophy, as though one were quite unconscious of what one's hands were doing. If that's not resented, and the cocktails have done their work, the rest shouldn't be difficult. It can be done, you know, the more easily, the more innocent they are. They can be brought in perfect ingenuousness to the most astonishing pitch of depravity. Oh, I feel quite grubby after reading that. Such a creep. And talking about himself in the third person as one is so tedious as well. What Huxley is describing here is grooming. When a sexual predator establishes an emotional connection with a person, lowers their inhibitions and manipulates them into doing what they want sexually. There it is in black and white, how this man set out to corrupt vulnerable women, as he says himself for fun, and to pass the time. And because of the novel's structure of point-counterpoint or argument-counter-argument, Spandrel is immediately challenged by another character, Mark Rampion, who condemns him for projecting his own self-loathing over sex onto women. Then this grotesque grooming episode quickly becomes an opportunity to talk about the philosophy of sexuality in Western European culture. 
A lot of this book feels like a nightmarish party where everyone is deadly earnest, very learned and terribly pompous. It's that social event where you had planned on having one drink, but quickly abandon all your good intentions when you realise you're trapped. And it doesn't matter if you get wasted. You still won't have fun, because this is a fun-free zone. Huxley does puncture the verbiage from time to time, but you can't help wishing he didn't indulge his ideas so much in the first place. Ah, and I'm finding that the structure of the book is forcing me to talk about it in a point-counterpoint kind of way, and I'm finding that quite tedious. So, hauling myself back to the smut, there is a proper sex scene between Walter, the spineless git who hates his pregnant girlfriend, and Lucy. Lucy is a dangerous man-eater who sleeps with Walter, although she practically despises him. This seduction sex scene goes on from page 260 to 267, which is epically long, and I will not bore you all to death by reading out large parts of it. As befits a book of ideas, it's not explicit about the physicality of sex, preferring to explore what each character thinks about sex. In summary, Lucy is charmed when Walter is domineering and harsh. I'll just read one paragraph to give you a flavour of how Huxley theorises the effect of sex on his characters. And this is from page 262, when Walter takes control of the situation. But this is a rape, she protested. Walter laughed. Not yet, he answered, but it's going to be. And in the grey and rose-coloured sitting room, it almost was. Lucy provoked and submitted to all the violences of sensuality. But what she had not expected to provoke was the adoring and passionate tenderness which succeeded those first violences. The hard look of anger faded from his face, and it was as though a protection had been stripped from him, and they were left bare in the quivering, vulnerable nakedness of adoring love. His caresses were like the soothing of pain or terror, like the appeasements of anger, like delicate propriations. His words were sometimes like whispered and fragmentary prayers to a god, sometimes words of whispered comfort to a sick child. Lucy was surprised, touched, almost put to shame by this passion of tenderness. And once again the structure of the book comes out here. One character has to reject the ideas of another, so Lucy has to refute Walter over love. But it gets much worse, because when Walter and Lucy argue over sex, he loves her, she feels little for him, this happens on page 265. When, with a hand under her cheek, he tried to turn her face back towards his kisses, she made a quick fierce movement and bit him in the ball of the thumb. Full of hatred and desire, he took her by force. Still bothering about love? she asked at last, breaking the silence of that languid convalescence which succeeds the fever of accomplished desires. Don't worry, it's all perfectly fine. She's very happy with this and luxuriates in the post-coital bliss afterwards. Fucking hell, these novels of ideas take terrible liberties with human relationships. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. But what annoys me most about the Lucy character is that she's based on Nancy Cunard, a fascinating heiress and political activist with whom Aldous Huxley had a fling. Apparently, Cunard said sex with Huxley was like being crawled over by slugs, which is such a burn. This woman is still remembered as oversexed, but that's not the most interesting thing about her. She was a passionate anti-racist and anti-fascist, as well as magnetically charismatic. Huxley took Cunard's sexual appetites and created Lucy, a callous, careless and thoughtless lech. Just lovely. A dynamic, inventive, headstrong woman becomes a vamp. Not one of Huxley's most original ideas. But I should point out that Huxley is also unkind about himself. The character Philip Quarles is commonly taken to be a self-portrait. Quarles is a writer whose wife even organises his extramarital affairs for him, hoping to provoke some sort of emotional response. I can only imagine what a censor thought on reading that a spouse arranged the other's infidelities. He must have come busted from shock. Quarles is an emotional wasteland, polite, disinterested, pretty much a nothing. He knows his own limitations too. He realises he cannot write simple, powerful tales because he lacks the talent of feelings or intuitions. If Huxley is writing about himself, that's pretty forthright criticism. You won't be surprised to hear that I agree with him. The ideas in this book are often challenging, and he's very satirical at times, but it's far too long and convoluted to make a decent point. If we compare point-counterpoint to another novel of ideas, George Orwell's Animal Farm, we can see Huxley's weaknesses. Orwell's devastating insights into human frailty are fueled by a powerful sense of justice and morality, as well as rage. I don't think Huxley has any ideas about how to improve the society he is so critical of. He is unflinching in his assessments of his character's flaws, but the only problem is that everyone in the book is deeply unpleasant. He feels disdain for just about everything that people hold dear. Money, status, science, politics, religion, sensual appetites. Everything. It doesn't seem to matter which character type Huxley places before us. 
he dislikes them all. Political renegades, whether left or right wing or anti-colonial, are mocked just as much as upper class twits or self-absorbed artists. Though I do think he was racist because he chooses to write the Indian characters speaking English with an accent. Because only one of the native English speakers is given idiomatic speech, I think that shows how much he dislikes the post-colonial critiques articulated by those Indian characters. But there is one character who isn't relentlessly undermined and pilloried. Mark Rampion and his wife Mary are by far the most likeable characters in Point Counterpoint. Rampion is a thinly veiled version of D.H. Lawrence, whose philosophy Huxley admired when he was writing the book. The Rampians have the least revolting relationship. Mark looks posh, but he is working class, while Mary appears plebeian, but is actually posh. They both do the housework and share responsibility for their children. Here's where it gets strange, though. There is no sex described or alluded to in their relationship, even in their early courtship, which is told in flashback. Given how often sex structures the characters' relationships with each other, it's very odd that this couple are portrayed as almost sexless. I think Huxley wants to use sex only to critique ideas or characters. He has no positive ideas about anything, least of all sex. All right, I've been mean about this book long enough. It's time to read you a funny bit. This is the description of Molly, Philip Quarles's wife, who's half Irish, and this is from page 111. Molly would have had to be a talker by marriage if she had not already been one by birth. Nature and environment had conspired to make her a professional athlete of the tongue. Like all conscientious professionals, she was not content to be merely talented. She was industrious. She worked hard to develop her native powers. Malicious friends said that she could be heard practising her paradoxes in bed before she got up in the morning. She herself admitted that she kept diaries in which she recorded, as well as the complicated history of her own feelings and sensations, every trope and anecdote and witticism that caught her fancy. Did she refresh her memory with a glance at these chronicles each time she dressed to go out to dinner? The same friends who had heard her practising in bed also found her, like an examinee the night before his ordeal, laboriously mugging up Jean Cateau's epigrams about art and Mr Birrell's after-dinner stories and W.B. Yeats's anecdotes about George Moore and what Charlie Chaplin had said to and of her last time she was in Hollywood. The filthy-minded among you will probably giggle extra hard at professional athlete of the tongue. Or maybe that's just me. I do think this piece is simply dazzling. It's a perfectly balanced satire, so even-handed, amused and detached. There's enough dislike to make it sharp, but it's not malicious. This section shows just how talented a writer Huxley could be. I love it so much, but of course, as an Irish person, I would find this very resonant. Good conversation is the most important social currency in our society. Talking too much is perfectly acceptable, but being boring is the worst sin of all. Point Counterpoint is considered Huxley's best novel by proper literary types and an important moment in modernist literature. I suppose I should just do a quick, very basic definition of modernism 
It was a cultural and artistic movement from 1900 to 1930, which rejected conventions and establishment thought, often involving the rejection of religion and morality. Obviously, the Irish censor was profoundly opposed to the modernist project, to reject religion, question family values and establish sexual morality was entirely unacceptable. The arch-conservatism of the censor would have revolted at Huxley's political and artistic project. By the time the censorship board was established in 1930, Huxley's book had been in circulation for two years, long enough for its subject matter to become well known. All of the novels on the first edition of The Blacklist were published in 1928, and I think the censorship board is making a powerful statement by banning old books. The censor was drawing a line in the sand, stating that his actions were profoundly ideological. Banning a book was not simply about obscenity as sexual explicitness, but about obscene morals. Huxley's book was amoral. All the characters, whether married or not, are poorly behaved. The married ones are either living in sin or divorced, or serial cheaters. Open infidelity is accepted and tolerated. Making a fuss or being hurt is as stupid as having the affairs. There is no moral judgment offered by the author. The book is an intellectual exercise demonstrating the moral bankruptcy of the English upper classes. Given the anglophobic nature of Irish nationalism in 1930, you would think it's odd that they censored such a book. But Huxley took aim at God and morality as well as the English, and that was simply unforgivable. I'm not sure the people of Ireland missed out on reading this for 37 years. Although parts of it are very clever, I didn't enjoy the whole experience. The party in Tantamount House in the opening chapters is so depressingly joyless. It's like all the glamour and fun of a big house event that I'm so familiar with from other books, was stripped out. Funnily enough, there was a weird echo, to me, of P.G. Wodehouse's Wooster books. Manipulative, aristocratic matrons and young singletons circling each other warily. There's even a fascist character, Waverley of the Brothers of British Freemen, that made me think irresistibly of Roderick Spode of the Black Shorts movement from Jeeves and Wooster. I know Huxley wasn't trying to be entertaining or cheerful, but I don't enjoy reading pessimistic books full of hateful people, especially when the author doesn't even care about any of them. But I'm just a girl reading books for smut. Who am I to criticise authors for being one-dimensional? And at last, it's time to play censorship bingo. On the very first line of the bingo sheet, breasts. Yes, there's explicit mention of tits, but as usual, there's nothing about genitalia. There are no drugs, even though there's lots of parties. No sex work, bestiality, racism. I do think the reproduction of the Indian character's accent is racist, but it doesn't seem to bother many people who've written about this book. Politics. Yes, there's lots of politics. The future of the empire, socialism, fascism. It's chock full of political opinion many of them incendiary in the censor's opinion. Swearing. Actually, there's no swearing, apart from one occasion when the nickname of the Brothers of British Freemen was written as Bloody Fuckers. But even then, a fucker was suggested with an ellipse 
so it's more a hint of swearing than actual swearing. Infidelity. Yes, there's lots of adultery. Too many times to chronicle with too many characters. Huxley could get bonus points for basing an entire book on marital infidelity. Crime. Yes, there's a murder, so yes. Sexual assault. As I read out, Walter rapes Lucy, but it's not really written as violence or criminal. There is another character in the book who's unable to form sexual relationships as an adult because she was assaulted as a young girl. Extramarital pregnancy. Yes, Marjorie at the very beginning. And in fact, I don't remember finding out what happened to Marjorie after that first few chapters. But there are so many characters I may have gotten lost. Masturbation, sex toys, feminism, no. Divorce. Yes, it's mentioned on page one. Contraception. Birth control is discussed in relation to India, very briefly. Menstruation. Definitely not. Blasphemy. I'm pretty sure the premise that God didn't exist is considered blasphemous by those suffering from an overdose of religion. And that's pretty much the definition of the Irish censor. There's no oral sex, graphic violence or queer characters. In censorship bingo, point-counterpoint scores 10 out of 25. I'm honestly shocked it got such a high score. It's not an explicit book, and I didn't think it was rude or smutty. But it's stuffed with controversial ideas that are openly debated. The sex in the book may not be explicit, but Huxley questions morality with his character's sexual relationships. So sex is fundamental to the narrative, even if there's almost no smut at all. That everyone is shagging everyone else is important, but the sex act itself is not. The shock value of this book, in the 1920s and 30s particularly, was the amorality of all the characters. I'm hoping the next episode's book will be much more fun. It's Iris Murdoch's Flight from the Enchanter, which was published in 1955. Murdoch is one of those famous writers I have shamefully never read. I didn't even know that she's considered an Irish writer because she was born in Dublin of Irish parents. I had always thought of her as English. She rarely appears in the popular pantheon of great Irish writers. But then that list is mostly male, so maybe that's why she gets left out. I have no idea how she offended the censor, a quick read of her biography suggests that her work was not seen as controversial or scandalous. Will she beat Huxley's censorship bingo score of 10 out of 25? I hope so, but I also pray that she will be entertaining as well as smutty. Even on a budget, Quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more 
and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.